And so I want to say at the outset, I apologize if I end up coughing or sneezing or blowing my nose. The, the cold I had last month is still with me. <laughs> so, so I'll just croak my way through this. <laughs> so today we're going to, uh, this is our third part of the charismatic movement in the U.S. And today I'm going to talk about the third wave and church growth. And I don't know about you, but third wave just sounds real cool to me. <laughs> and we're going to talk about what that means. Um, in the pictures, you can see a picture, a photograph of a vineyard church in um, Indiana. I thought it was a nice photograph, so I put it up there. Um, of course, uh, well, let me ask before we get started, really, how many people have heard of the vineyard? Like everybody, of course. Has anybody ever uh, gone to a service at the vineyard? I have. Yep. Okay. So you're going to have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to be talking about. But a lot of people don't really know the history of the vineyard and, and some of the history behind the things that affected the vineyard and shaped it. So we're going to talk about those things. <clears throat> As the 1970s passed and the 80s began, aspects of the American charismatic movement began to change. Not surprisingly, everything changes. Now, some charismatics began to emphasize exercising spiritual gifts in the context of evangelism, not just within the church walls. The idea is that those who do not believe the gospel are more likely to come to Christ if gospel preaching is accompanied by supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit, such as miraculous healings and modern prophetic proclamations. So power evangelism is the name given to this approach to gospel preaching. Uh, while evangelists in the Jesus movement had already begun to engage in power evangelism, the concept was further developed and expanded in the ministry of John Wimber, leader of the vineyard for many years. How many people have heard of John Wimber? Anybody other than Roseanne and me? Right, so you may, have, you may know about the vineyard, but you may not know much about John Wimber. So we are going to talk about the origins of the vineyard and the ministry of John Wimber <clears throat> because he was extremely influential. So the vineyard has its origins in the founding of a Calvary Chapel church by a couple named Ken and Joni Gullickson. They were members of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in 1974 in Los Angeles, California. Um, so if you recall previous talks where I talked about Calvary Chapel, here's another outgrowth of the ministry of Calvary Chapel. And all of this, all the people I'm going to be talking about, <clears throat> mostly, most of the people I'm going to be talking about uh, today uh, were doing their ministry and work in the Los Angeles area. So this is all coming out of Southern California. And the Gullicksons, at that time in the 70s, conducted many Bible studies 
that attracted actors and musicians and people who were active in the entertainment industry in Hollywood, and Bob Dylan was actually one of those people. <clears throat> What's that? <laughs> uh, at this point, I'll stop asking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a talk for another time, I guess. <laughs> so John Wimber was born February 25th, 1934 in Kirksville, Missouri. And as you can see for this, from this picture, he was a, a friendly, outgoing, charismatic guy who had a very relaxed approach to Christian ministry. And his background was not religious at all. He was not brought up in church. Uh, he never went to church, and he came to Christ at age 29 as a self-proclaimed chain-smoking, beer-guzzling drug abuser. So he came out of a very wild, you know, background, a typical of many people in this time period, especially in Southern California. But as a teenager and young adult, Wimber was a musician, playing keyboards and singing in jazz groups, and later as part of the Righteous Brothers, which was... Um, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I have to explain this. <laughs> yeah. So the Righteous Brothers was a group that was really popular in this time period, and they had a style of music called Blue-Eyed Soul. There were a couple of white guys who were trying to sing what was essentially black popular music, but they became famous. They had some hits. But Wimber was actually a very accomplished musician. Uh, he converted to Christianity in 1963, enrolled in Azusa Pacific College, and majored in biblical studies. Upon graduating, he was ordained as a Quaker minister. He then took a pastoral position with the Yorba Linda Friends, Friends Church. Yorba Linda is one of those cities that's really close to L.A. By 1970, Wimber was leading 11 different Bible study groups that involved more than 500 people. And he was the founding director of the Department of Church Growth at the Charles E. Fuller Institute of Evangelism and Church Growth from 74 to 78, <clears throat> which was founded by Fuller Theological Seminary and the Fuller Evangelistic Association. Fuller Theological Seminary and its various offshoots are based in Southern California. Wimber was also on staff at the Yorba Linda California Friends Church, but he eventually left the Quakers after being discouraged from operating in the gifts of the Spirit by the Quakers. He formed a house church in 77 in Yorba Linda that grew and eventually became associated with, once again, Calvary Chapel. By 1982, the church that he was pastoring left Calvary Chapel and affiliated with the Vineyard Churches under the Gullicksons. The church pastored by John Wimber quickly became the flagship church of the Vineyard Movement as the newly named Anaheim California Vineyard, and it was extremely large. It was a mega church. In the early 1980s, Wimber took the leadership of the Vineyard Churches and proceeded to plant hundreds of churches in the, in the coming decades 
first in the U.S. and then globally. There are a lot of vineyard churches in um, Great Britain and in Scandinavia. Wimber became convinced of God's healing power and spent months encouraging his church to pray for the sick, but they prayed for hundreds of people who never got healed. Oops. However, they continued to pray for the sick and eventually began to see genuine healings. So despite the great move of the Holy Spirit happening, it, especially in this part of the U.S. at this time period, um, you know, sometimes the spiritual gifts, when we seek them, don't come easily. Now, by the mid-'80s, the Anaheim Vineyard had grown significantly. Uh, Wimber, at that point, started ministering globally. Uh, he was traveling all over the world, teaching and demonstrating God's healing power. Now, in some ways, you can think of this like the latter rain movement that we talked about, you know, conducting big meetings and people are being prayed for. But the approach is very different. Um, and later, we'll talk about how different it was than the latter rain movement. <clears throat> Theologically, Wimber is best known for applying George, George Ladd's theology of the kingdom of God to healing ministry. Anybody here heard of George Eldon Ladd? A few, okay, a few people I have. I have never read anything he's written, and I'm thinking I probably should. Uh, George Eldon Ladd, who lived from 1911 to 1982, was a Baptist minister and professor of New Testament exegesis and theology and once again, Fuller Theological Seminary in Southern California. Ladd developed the idea that the kingdom of God is a reality that is both present in our midst, but not completely present. In other words, it has an already component and a not yet component. Ladd's best-known work, A Theology of the New Testament, has been used by thousands of seminary students since its publication in 1974. In a poll conducted by Mark Knoll in 1986, Ladd's theology ranked as the second most influential book amongst evangelical scholars, second only to Calvin's Institutes. So hopefully some of you listening to this are beginning to think, hmm, maybe I should read something George Eldon Ladd read. Um, you know, that'd be a good thing. Ladd's belief in both present and future aspects of the kingdom of God caused his detractors to critically compare his eschatological views to the amillennialism that was popular within Reformed theological circles. And we know that, you know, Josiah in his messages on Sunday morning has just um, outlined for us over the last few weeks the, the three different approaches to eschatology, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Um, so Ladd um, is premillennial, as we'll find, but he has a different approach to it, and he's not a dispensationalist. He is also not a reformed, um, he, he's not reformed when it comes to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, 
and he rejected the Calvinistic view of the doctrine of salvation. So he's somewhat Arminian. Ladd's approach to the idea of what the kingdom of God is was quite different than that of most evangelicals in the early part of the 20th century. He was an important modern proponent of historic premillennialism and often criticized dispensationalism. And this was notable during this period because dispensationalism was very popular and widespread among evangelicals and charismatics. His writings regarding the kingdom of God, especially his view of inaugurated eschatology, have become a cornerstone of kingdom theology. <clears throat> inaugurated eschatology is the belief that the end times were inaugurated or begun in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, with the implication that there are already and not yet aspects to the kingdom of God. He suggested that not only is an eschatological gift belonging to the age to come, it is also a gift to be, to be received in the old aeon or age. In other words, the idea is, and, and this started with the ministry of Jesus, what do we see Jesus doing? We see him going around, healing people, casting out demons, and telling his disciples and anyone who would listen to him, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's, it's really, really close. And in fact, he's bringing it. <clears throat> John Wimber applied these ideas in his approach to healing. <clears throat> so in application to healing Wimber saw that this theology could help explain why we might sometimes see God heal people but we don't see all people healed all the time his most well-known book is Power Healing and it contains the simple message that God wants to use ordinary people to touch the lives of others who are sick or in need. And one of Wimber's most famous sayings was, everyone gets to play because he wanted all Christians to feel equipped to participate in God's kingdom. And this, again, is a very different approach because up till this point, if you went to go see a faith healer, what would you be doing? You'd just be sitting in the audience and you'd be watching, in essence, what is a show. You know, the faith healer is up there, he's preaching or she's preaching, and people are lining up to get prayed for, and people are just spectators, basically. But Wimber wanted everybody to participate in praying for the sick. Now, Wimber also taught classes at Fuller Theological Seminary, most notably a course in the early 80s called Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth. And this class became famous, and it was somewhat controversial, as Wimber didn't just teach theories, but encouraged his students to apply what they learned to ministry and evangelism. If you went to this class, you wouldn't just be sitting at a desk in a normal college classroom taking notes. He would lecture for a while or preach, and then he would say, we're all going to do it. We're going to have a clinic, is what he would say. Greg and I went to, I don't know if Greg remembers this, but we went to see John Wimber. Oh, I don't know what year it was, 80, 
Yeah, in the 80s, mid-80s, in Columbus. He was coming through Columbus. We're like, we're going to go see John Wimber. And he preached for a while and taught on healing. And then he said, we're going to conduct a clinic. And, you know, if you've been in college classrooms, you'll know a lot of times uh, it's like, well, break up into small groups and discuss the topic and different things. It was the same kind of thing. It was like, you know, all, but this is thousands of people. All you people have come to see me put on a show, but now I'm telling you, now it's time to do what I've been talking about and you can do it. So Wimber's application of inaugurated eschatology and his understanding of the kingdom of God differed from many of his evangelical peers and differed from the eschatology that many charismatics embraced. A lot of charismatics during 60s, 70s, and 80s were uh, dispensational premillennialists, and they were like, Jesus is coming back any day. Yeah, there was always discussion about, will we have to go through some kind of tribulation? We might, we might not, I don't know. But Jesus is coming back very, very soon. Wimber's friend, C. Peter Wagner, coined the phrase, the third wave of the Holy Spirit, to describe the concepts that Wimber was teaching. Now, the third wave differs from classic Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, primarily in the approach to speaking in tongues. Whereas the previous groups had emphasized the gift of tongues as the only evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Wimber and those he influenced emphasized that this was just one of the many spiritual gifts available to believers as taught in the Bible. And you, you know, basically you didn't have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit, and you could be filled with the Spirit and pray for the sick. You could give some kind of prophetic word. You could engage in other spiritual gifts, and you might not necessarily speak in tongues, but that didn't mean you weren't Spirit-filled. His teaching revolutionized what was a major theological stumbling block to some mainstream evangelicals and normalized the demonstrations of signs and wonders in current times. Wimber was very outspoken about maintaining authenticity and doing nothing for religious effect in a church service or conference. He was dissatisfied with the way some services were run, got angry with what appeared to be the manipulation of people for the material gains of the faith healer, pushing people over and calling it the power of God, and accepting money for healing ministry. So he, he saw the obvious abuses and excesses within a lot of healing ministries, and that really turned him off, and he did not want to replicate that. Wimber was not against manifestations in a service as long as they were real actions of God and not fleshly and brought out by some, display, some sort of display or promoted by somebody on stage. In other words, we're not going to have a show. We're not just going to do all these fantastic things and have people watch and maybe if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, we're going to fake it till we make it. We're not going to engage in that. We're going to be authentic. His third wave approach to spiritual gifts found a reception among some evangelicals who were not at all open to the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. Some evangelicals took the third wave approach to mean that 
Christians did not necessarily have to speak in tongues as evidence that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they might demonstrate other gifts instead. I was in a meeting in Springfield, Ohio in uh, the early 90s where a man who was very much opposed to speaking in tongues gave a prophetic utterance and it truly was anointed. So, you know, this, this approach, this different approach to uh, the charismatic gifts, very different. Now, Charles Peter Wagner, who lived from August 15, 1930 to October 21st, 2016, was an American missionary, writer, teacher, and founder of several Christian organizations. And in his earlier years, he was known as a key leader of the church growth movement. Later, he was known for his writings on spiritual warfare. And, no surprise, he was trained at Fuller Theological Seminary. He also went to Princeton and uh, Fuller's School of World Missions. He received a PhD from the University of Southern California in social ethics in 1977 and was ordained by the Conservative Congregational Christian Conference, which is a, you know, just your standard evangelical uh, organization, not at all charismatic or Pentecostal. Wagner served as a missionary in Bolivia under the South American Mission and Andes Evangelical Mission, now SIM International, from 56 to 71. And he then served for 30 years as professor of church growth, growth rather, at the Fuller Theological Seminary School of World Missions until his retirement in 2001. During this time, Wagner was largely recognized as the leading authority on the church growth movement. Um, so as the name implies, you know, nothing mysterious here. This guy is, you know, heavily involved in evangelism, studying evangelism, studying different methods of doing evangelism, and um, just, you know, his, his, whole, his whole goal was to see the church grow and expand and, and figuring out ways to do that. The acceptance of Wagner's teaching on church, church growth by churches across the world was due in part to the use of Fuller Theological Seminary as a platform to spreading the message. So this, this Fuller Theological Seminary is not a big school. It has maybe 3,000 students, maybe, um, but a lot of stuff is happening here, especially in the 80s and uh, the 90s, and it's having a big influence on these movements that are spreading worldwide. Wagner and Donald McGavern, who was the dean of the School of World Missions at Fuller, led the Fuller Evangelistic Association to continue to spread the message of church growth. And for Wagner and his followers, church growth meant more than just evangelizing and proclaiming the gospel. Again, it's this idea of we are gonna demonstrate the power of gospel of the gospel by praying for the sick, by casting out demons. In other words, we're gonna do the same things that we see outlined in the book of Acts that the apostles and the other disciples were doing. Proclaiming the gospel with signs and wonders, just as the apostles and the early church had done it in the book of Acts, was the model. 
But Wagner went further and asserted that the church as portrayed in the New Testament had no divisions or denominations like the churches of the 20th century had up to that point. In 1996, Fuller uh, presented a paper entitled The Post-Denominational Church, and he proposed a model of church government that reflected what we see in the New Testament, that apostles and prophets would emerge and take their place as church leaders in the post-denominational age. Wagner was so confident about this pattern of church government that he later declared that a second apostolic age had begun in the year 2001. Wagner preached a five-fold ministry view based on Ephesians 4.13 in which apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors or shepherds, and teachers are considered legitimate offices of the church today. But mainline Protestant denominations view the offices of apostles and prophets as having ceased to exist with the death of the last of the 12 original apostles, and that would be, of course, the apostle John, who died shortly before or around 100 AD. So in other words, for most Protestant evangelicals, this is really radical to see the idea of people functioning as apostles and prophets in the 20th and later the 21st century. This is pretty radical. Wagner used the term New Apostolic Reformation to describe what he observed as a movement within Pentecostal and Charismatic churches. By using this title, Wagner was not implying that the NAR was a formal organization or that it has a formal membership. It was simply a way to describe the organic grassroots development of church structure at different times and places in the 20th century inaugurated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in 1900. And Wagner saw this further developing in the 21st century. Wagner stated, the roots of the NAR go back to the beginning of the African independent church movement in 1900, the Chinese house church movement beginning in 1976, the U.S. independent charismatic movement beginning in the 1970s, and the Latin American grassroots church movement beginning around the same time. I was neither the founder nor a member of any of these movements. I was simply a professor who observed that they were the fastest growing churches in their respective regions and that they had a number of common characteristics. And um, I don't know how well you can see that reference there. This is from an article that appeared in uh, Charisma News in which Wagner is having to defend this idea of the new apostolic reformation that it's not a cult. Because, of course, some people were saying it it was. (laughs) Uh, It's too disorganized to be a cult, honestly. (laughs) Now, cultic, there may be cultic groups. This is the thing you have to understand about a cult. Um, You can have Christian groups that have orthodox theology, correct theology, and still function in cult-like ways. 
You can have organizations that may seem to be very uh, off the beaten path, so to speak, but still not cultic. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easily defined thing necessarily. However, Wagner did go on to create an organization called the New Apostolic Reformation. And isn't this what human beings do with the move of God? They take the things of God and they want to put it in a box, institutionalize it, regularize it, you know, uh, write organizational governing documents, bylaws, and incorporate, and do all those human things. Um, but the fact is, the Holy Spirit cannot be contained by any human organization. In books such as Strategies for Church Growth, uh, written in 1987, The New Apostolic Churches, 1988, and Churchquake, 1999, Wagner describes how non-denominational churches were emerging all over the world, creating associations and apostolic networks and restoring the fivefold ministries. And these churches had a passion for local and worldwide evangelism, energetic worship, fervent prayer, and church planting. Another distinguishing characteristic of these new kinds of churches was an emphasis on the senior pastor as a strong leader, submitted to apostolic leadership provided by the association. But the association does not have the same kind of authority over local churches as a denomination would have. The association cannot hire or fire senior pastors of local churches as a denomination can. Now, this can be good. This can provide opportunities for growth of local leadership and avoid scenarios of head transplants. Now, what do I mean by a head transplant? A head transplant is, you typically find this um, probably in Pentecostal denominations. Let's say a man is pastoring a church, and he's a very good pastor and a successful speaker, and the church is growing, and Everything about this man's ministry has the hallmarks of success around it. So the denomination looks at this man and says, well, you know, the church you're pastoring is growing and everything looks good and this is great and you're doing a terrific job, but maybe you're pastoring a church in kind of an obscure place. Maybe the church is not located in a big city, you know. So what we're going to do with you is we're going to pluck you out and we're going to move you somewhere across the country or maybe to another country, and we're going to install you as a pastor in a big church in a big city or someplace, you know, and you're going to be even more successful. Now, is that necessarily what the Holy Spirit wants? Is that necessarily the leading of the Lord? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it just comes out of, you know, maybe there's good motivation behind it, or maybe not so great. Um, but in any event, the church that has had its pastor removed is kind of left, okay, now what? And then the denomination will come in and say, here's a guy who can be your pastor. Head transplants don't often work out real well. <laughs> Just as like, you know, medical science has not yet figured out how to take the head off of one person and transplant it onto another, <laughs> uh, the same thing seems to be true in the body of Christ. Many of times, many times, th this, these sorts of efforts don't work out too well. 
A weakness of the association model is that any time there can be church splits and the local church pastor can lead his church out of the association. And sad to say, this is exactly happening in the Anaheim Vineyard right now. Uh, the leaders of that vineyard church, which is still extremely big in Southern California, have left uh, the Vineyard Association of Churches. I mean, this is literally taking place at this time. And it, it's been, you know, church splits are always painful. I mean, I suppose there could be some unpainful, you know, reasonably mild church splits, but honestly, let's be real about it. Church splits are usually devastating for a lot of people. Um, now, church splits can certainly happen in denominations as well, although usually less likely. Now, another characteristic of these apostolic churches is that they embrace spiritual gifts and often see many supernatural occurrences, such as powerful healings and deliverance. And many of these churches emphasize prophetic ministry and encourage and teach members to participate in these gifts. Uh, again, this idea, Wimber's idea of everyone gets to play. In other words, God wants to use you the ordinary person sitting in the church pew. He doesn't just want the professionals to do the stuff. He wants everyone in the body of Christ doing the stuff. Now, C. Peter Wagner also wrote and taught about spiritual warfare and how the new apostolic churches engaged effectively in spiritual warfare. And according to Wagner, one of the most important aspects of prophetic and apostolic ministry is to function as prayer warriors actively interceding to God on behalf of the contemporary world. So if our evangelism is going to be effective, we need to couple it with lots of prayer and uh, spiritual warfare. These prayer warriors uh, are responsible for ushering in the return of Jesus and the kingdom of God through spiritual warfare and prayer. Again, very much a premillennial focus. Now, another big focus is on the kingdom of God itself. So again, you always have to ask yourself the question, what is the kingdom of God? Some have called this kingdom theology or dominion theology. If the kingdom of God is the place where the will of God is done willingly by those who inhabit it, in other words, by Christians, then that rule can be extended beyond the lives of individual Christians and the church. So the kingdom of God is not necessarily identical to the church. The church is in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God can encompass more than the church. Christians can participate in all spheres of life, such as business, politics, government, and the legal system, education, technology, and science, and influence those aspects of human society by functioning as Christians and applying Christian principles and ethics to them. By doing this, Christians will be extending the kingdom of God to all areas of life, even those that do not seem to be ostensibly Christian at all. The American churches that fit into this new apostolic reformation have all applied these ideas in different ways. The Vineyard Church of Anaheim, California, led by John Wimber, was just one among many uh, such new churches and church associations. Um, 
honestly, I would have to say, and this is just my personal <laughs> opinion, but the, the style of the vineyard, their approach to how they do church has influenced tons of mega churches, uh, not just churches within the Vineyard Association. <clears throat> Beginning in 1988, Wimber established relationships with leaders known for their prophetic ministries, such as Paul Kane, Bob Jones, not the Bob Jones of Bob Jones University. This is a different, different guy, totally different. John Paul Jackson and Mike Bickle, who pastored Kansas City Fellowship, an independent church which initially came under the Vineyard banner as Metro Vineyard. <clears throat> Known as the Kansas City Prophets, these men had considerable influence on Wimber and the Vineyard and on the larger charismatic movement. According to John Paul Jackson, Wimber's son was delivered from drug addiction through a prophetic word from Bob Jones. However, there were those in the vineyard who were skeptical, and Wimber himself became disillusioned over the restorationist teaching and failed prophecies of these men. What began to emerge is a lot of the prophetic words given by these prophets didn't come true. What, does, what did the scripture say about a prophet whose prophecy doesn't come true? Okay? So, um, you know, there's a lot of mixture in this, in what's going on. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. So around 1991, Wimber began to distance himself from the prophetic movement, leading the vineyard back to a church planting direction, while Bickle's church withdrew and dropped the vineyard label. Mike Bickle would later go on to found the International House of Prayer, or IHOP, in Kansas City. And I think a lot of you have heard of IHOP, right? Lots of people have heard of IHOP. Maybe you've even been there. Uh, with renewed emphasis on church planning, Wimber resumed ministering internationally. However, by 1983, Wimber began experiencing serious health problems. It started with minor chest pains every four or five months, but he did not seek medical treatment. By October 1985, with worsening symptoms, his wife insisted he get tested. The next month, his cardiologist confirmed he had a damaged heart and told him that his weight and schedule put him at risk of imminent death. Honestly, um, after having studied the life of Charles Spurgeon and now looking at John Wimber, I just see so many uh, similarities and correlation. It, you know, here's a very gifted man of God. Unfortunately, he was very overweight. He's just traveling constantly. He has a very stressful schedule. He's leading this huge organization. Again, lots of stress. Um, very fruitful in his ministry, but it's very hard. Uh, in 1985, I was away from home for over 40 weeks, <clears throat> and all my life, Wimber confessed, I've been a compulsive person, <clears throat> always working, eating more than I should. Unfortunately, in 1986, he had a heart attack. 
1993, he was diagnosed with sinus cancer. He had successful radiation treatment, which lasted a year, but by 1995, he had had a stroke. By 97, triple bypass heart surgery. His, unfortunately, his mental faculties were declining, and later that same year, he fell and hit his head. This caused a massive brain hemorrhage from which he died on November 17th, 97 in Santa Ana, California. Again, you know, this is, this is the area where the Anaheim Vineyard is, and he was only 63 years old. Now, Wimber's health problems had challenged his theology and experience. After teaching on healing, praying for the sick, and seeing people healed, he openly admitted, not only have I suffered physically with health problems, but I also spent a great deal of time struggling with depression during my battle with cancer. Sometimes our experiences don't fit with our understanding of what the Bible teaches. Wimber's legacy encompasses the Vineyard Association of Churches, Vineyard International Publishing and Vineyard Worship, the music publishing arm of the association. <clears throat> By 2018, it was estimated that Vineyard US had approximately 200,000 members in 600 churches, and that's just in the US. Vineyard distinctives have had a major impact on mega churches worldwide. Vineyard church services are conducted in a contemporary style, and attendees feel free to wear very casual clothing. Now, this may seem totally normal now, but in the early 80s, it was cutting edge. <coughs> uh, the music is contemporary, much of the music written by vineyard uh, musicians. The slogan of one of the regional vineyard churches here in Ohio is, come as you are, you'll be loved. <coughs> Other sayings of John Wimber capture the essence of his approach to doing Christianity. <coughs> Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. <coughs> I'll leave you with this. <coughs> <coughs>